Welcome to the Concordia Publishing House podcast, where we consider everything in the light of Jesus Christ, who is the same yesterday, today, and forever. I'm your host, Elizabeth Pittman. On today's episode, we're joined by Pastor Brian Wolfmuller for part one of a two-part series where we're going to talk about the big question, has American Christianity failed? Pastor Wolfmuller is going to help us recognize false teaching that has crept into American theology and Christianity today. And as we're talking, he's not going to leave us there with that false teaching, but he's going to unequivocally point us to the beauty that is found in the gospel that brings us real comfort, real hope, real freedom, and the sure hope of Christ. Before we start our conversation with Pastor Wolf Mueller, I'd like to thank our friends at the LCMS Foundation for their support of the podcast. Imagine a future where your God-given gifts will continue to benefit your family and faith after you've been called home to heaven. Our friends at the LCMS Foundation can help you create a gift plan so that your assets, things like your retirement accounts, home or land, will be able to leave a lasting impact on the people you love and the ministries you care about the most after you've been called home to heaven. Visit lcmsfoundation.org to learn more about creating your gift plan. Now onto our conversation with Pastor Wolfmuller. Brian, it's great to see you again. Thank you. Great to be here. Well, it's it's good to have you back with us. And we're going to start with a big question. We seem to be on a roll with episodes lately for those who have been listening to the podcast of launching our guests with a rather big question. So the question for you today is... Has American Christianity failed? <laughs> it's good to remember that Jesus cannot fail. He does not fail. And Jesus gives us the promise that I will I will build my church, which I, I was thinking about this. In fact, yesterday, how there's so much comfort in the pronoun my. Like, do you, like I don't know when, if you, when your kids get in trouble and I, I say to Carrie, I said, your son did, you know, your, I, he's not mine, he's yours. <laughs> We, we do that a lot in my house, too. <laughs> I think that Jesus would be like that, too. Like, I, they're not mine, but he doesn't. He claims us. He says, my church, I will build my church. That's so great. And the gates of hell will not prevail against it, which not only means will the church withstand the satanic and demonic attacks that, it, that she faces from the beginning to the end and will stand in glory on the last day. But it means that the gates of hell will not prevail. In other words, the church will attack the, the, the through the church. The Lord attacks the kingdom of demonic darkness and overthrows the, the, the devil. So we never should be afraid or worried that the Lord's church would fail. But American Christianity has absorbed a number of theological assertions. It's it's become a theological argument that is different than the scriptures. So we'll have to define American Christianity, but this is to say that the the general tenor of the church in the United States has lost a number of the gifts that Jesus would give. And in that way, American Christianity has failed. And I think in a, in a number of specific ways, American Christianity has failed to teach the simplicity of Christ in the scriptures. American Christianity has failed to embrace the power of the gospel, which the Bible gives to us. American Christianity has failed to see the depth of our sin, 
And in that failure also, American Christianity f- fails to see the height of the Lord's love for us. And so uh, American Christianity has, because of the theological arguments and uh, um, assertions that it's embraced, fails to bring the full comfort of the gospel to the Lord's people. And so um, we want to we want to point out those errors, but we want to point out the errors for the sake of the comfort of sinners that Jesus wants us to have. It's um, it's not just it's all this is an important I think an important thing for us to think about as we do theology. And this is how Lutherans do theology. It's not just to say, well, what's right according to the Bible, but to recognize that the truth also comforts. So that if it's wrong, it's also uh, dangerous. If it's wrong, it's also bad. So the right thing is the best thing. The truth is also the most comforting. Uh, it doesn't get any better. Uh, the truth is the best. So, um, so it's important for us to kind of approach the theology in that way. When we when we approach these errors, we're doing it for the sake of comforting terrified consciences. How have we gone nose blind today? I think you you talk about this um, in your book. Has American Christianity failed? You know, we we as Americans have gone nose blind, which means we need to figure out how to combat that. So, what yeah. does that look like for yeah. us? I remember. So I I think I was watching some Febreze commercial, right? And it's this this funny thing because, like, you invite friends over, and you you live in a ha- a house full of like 50 cats and you don't realize how bad it smells right because you just you live in it all the time <laughs> or teenage boys <laughs> <laughs> that's right i i and i this is the funniest thing cuz it's true because you you sort of um our bodies adjust to to neutral for where we normally are this is a true also for like i i noticed it when i would go visit my grandmother we moved from texas to albuquerque when i was a kid and we'd go to visit my grandparents and the smell of their house was so wonderful. I don't know what it was. It was ah, and then, but you would be there for three days and you don't smell that anymore. You just adjust to it. And then we'd go back home and then I'd open my suitcase and the clothes would then, the smell would come back and I would smell my grandparents' house. I would absorb the smell. I think that happens theologically. We, we absorb the, um, it we're, we're made of reflective stuff. I think when the Lord creates us in his likeness, it means that our beings are impressionable. We're reflective. We, we take the shape of whatever's going on. I, the Psalms talk about like um, the idol makers. If you, you, you have a God that doesn't, that doesn't, has eyes but doesn't see, those who make them become like them, and so do all who worship them. So if you worship a blind God, you yourself become blind. This, this nature. So we have this impressionable character. Uh, uh, and, and that means when I think we absorb the theological assertions that are around us. So there's a way that American theology is very unique in the history of the church, but we don't notice it because it's just it's just what we grow up with. It's just what we had all the time. I used to talk about people being dispensational by default. Dispensationalism is a pretty unique uh, form of eschatology of teaching about the end times that has to do with the pre-tribulation rapture of the church and God's role for Israel and the church and all this kind of stuff. It's very unique in the history of the church. It's very it's a new theology, but it's talked about so often by preachers and on the radio. At least it used to be twenty years ago that 
you just absorb that theology and you don't know that there's anything different. And so one of the, one of the purposes of the book is to try to awaken those senses and say, hey, that thing that I hear all the time, let's just test it with the word of God. Let's just take our theological assumptions and let's just make sure that they match up with the words that the Lord has spoken in the prophets and the apostles and, and try to, um, what would that be? It's like to awaken our discernment, our theological discernment. And, and that's good because either way, it's going to be fine. We, we, all of us should be theologically discerning because we don't want to, um, if we're right, we want to know that that's from the Bible. And if we're wrong, we want to be able to repent. So the Christian should have no um, interest, invested interest in defending their own positions. We should always be ready to lay down the things that we think are right if the Lord's word gives us something different. Because Christians are lovers of truth and knowing that the truth is, again, what's best. So, So to awaken that discernment and to go on that exploration of, well, what does the Bible say? What does it say about itself? What does it say about our triune God? What does it say about our own sinful condition? What does it say about the Lord saving us and getting that salvation to us and assuring us of that salvation? And you know, what does it say about prayer? And what does it say about our life as Christians? We want to just test our assumptions with the scriptures. And I, I think when we test the assumptions of American Christianity with the scriptures, they're found wanting, but then what we find is something so much more glorious and comforting in the Bible. It's, it's great. So what are some, you talk about four different movements that have taken place um, that lead to error in American Christianity. Walk us through those and help us recognize them. Sure. The, it's like the four rivers that flow out of Eden, but it's kind of, it's like, um, I remember when we were working on the book and 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 we were talking about American Christianity and uh, I thought, in fact, working with Scott and editing and just, well, we probably should define American Christianity. And I didn't want to say, hey, this is the non-denominational church. Or this is the Southern Baptist church. Or this is United Methodist church. That's what we're, that's what we're doing. No, it's um, because these theologic, four theological strains are in all it's just in the air and it's not out there also it's in here i mean I, I in some ways i was writing the book also for lutherans to see where they have um absorbed the theological errors that are embraced in the american church and so that we can also correct it for our, for our own comfort so I, I think we could say the four strains the theological words that we're using are revivalism, pietism, uh, mysticism, and enthusiasm. But we could say it like this way. Pietism is, sorry, uh, decisionism or revivalism means that my Christian life starts with me. Pietism means my Christian life continues with me. Mysticism means that um, I grow close to God um, on the inside through the experience. And really, enthusiasm is a is a way of categorizing all of it. And that is to say that the thing that matters is the internal more than the external, that the, that the religious life is reduced to the inner life 
rather. And so anything outside of me is not spiritual. So those are the four things that I've identified. And so revivalism, these are probably historical things too. They just, they were arguments that made their way into the Christian conversation and the, the arguments that have won the day have been bad arguments. So the, the first is how do I become a Christian? And so much of American Christianity says it's all about my will, my decision. Billy Graham, the most popular theologian, would say that it's uh, uh, my accepting Jesus into my heart. Or I got a meeting with the Gideons. They're coming by church next week. And I always say, hey, look, I love the work that you guys are doing, except for the last page. Because you have that where you write in, here's where I gave my life to Christ, and here's the time, and here's the place. And it's all about that that, that uh, giving, that surrendering, that sinner's prayer, uh, the, the, the coming down the sawdust trail. It comes from the revivalistic practices, which were innovated by Charles Finney and uh, in the Second Great Awakening in the United States. And so it, it, it American Christianity says, yeah, that's, that's what it means to be a Christian. In fact, we don't hear this language so much anymore, but if you go back 30 years, it was always a question of, well, okay, you're a Christian, but are you born again, right? Have you truly dedicated your life to Christ? Have you truly given your life to him? And it's an amazing thing because, because while the American Christianity would want to emphasize the grace of God, we're saved by grace through faith, not by works. It, there's, there is the, that one work, that one decision, that one prayer. And it's very strange because you'll, you'll go to a church and they'll say, Look, we just believe the Bible. We don't have these traditions of men. And then what do they call the traditions of men? Things like baptism or the Lord's Supper. And it's like, what? now wait a minute. Jesus invented that. We, and it's like, we just have the authentic biblical doctrine of making a decision for Christ. It's like, well, sh- show me that in the Bible. Show me that, show me that, show me the sinner's prayer in the Bible. And it's, it's just not there, but it, it's so, um, ingrained again in the in the water. The problem is, so the theological problem is that our will is alienated from God. Not only do we not have a free will to choose God, decide to follow God, or even believe in God, our will after the fall is opposed to God. We are his enemies. And so the Lord converts us Theologically, it's monergism. The Lord alone works to convert us, to turn, to change his enemies into his friends. The will is not the tool of conversion, but the object of conversion. So when the Lord converts us, it's precisely our will that he's changing. It's not our will that changes us. It's, it's God changing our will. And, uh, and so we have to confess that clearly from the scriptures. We're dead in trespasses and sins, Ephesians 2, or the favorite old Lutheran verse was first. Corinthians chapter 2 verse 14 that the mind of the flesh cannot receive the things of the spirit of God it's not able the theo- so that's the theological problem but practically it's important because if I'm a Christian because I decided how can I ever be sure and this is the this is the disastrous uncertainty in which most Christians live like, how can I know that I'm a Christian? How can I know that I've done enough, surrendered enough, given enough, committed enough, 
prayed hard enough because I see in my life that I'm half the time half-hearted, most of the time dismissive, that I continue to sin in what I think and what I want and what I say and what I do. And so can I really be a Christian? Did I really do it enough? It's why most people in the old Southern Baptist Church have been baptized multiple times, have accepted Jesus multiple times, because it seems like they didn't do it right the first time. They've got to come at it again. And I lived in that despair uh, for years. And it, and it's a frightful place to be. So the the famous story, the McDonald's story, this this weird thing that happened, but it, I think it encapsulates it is one day, years and years ago, I was in McDonald's, and this lady, and I was undercover. I wasn't dressed as a pastor or anything. And this lady walked up to me, and she says, what do you do? And I said, uh, uh, I'm a Lutheran pastor. Is that what you're asking about? And she, and she maybe, I'm, I've always been trying to figure out what why she asked that. But recently, I started an ASL class. This is a rabbit trail for a rabbit trail. Uh, Carrie and I, my wife, were taking an American Sign Language class. And so I was talking to the two classmates next to me, young kids. We were playing some game, practicing our, our sign language. And uh, they asked what I did. And I said, I'm a Lutheran pastor. And they both kind of nodded. And I said, what, what does that mean? And they said, oh, you kind of give off a pastor vibe. <laughs> <laughs> I do not know what a pastor, but maybe I was giving off the pastor vibe in the McDonald's narthex there. And um, and I told this lady I'm a Lutheran pastor. And she said, well, I'm a Baptist. What's the difference? Oh, boy. I've had conversations like that with with um, in-laws. Yeah. So go I, for it. I normally say, well, you know, sola scriptura, sola grace alone, faith alone stuff. But this day I didn't. I said, okay. I said, you and your church, do you have a time of decision at the end of the service? Yeah. She said, you have an altar call where the pastor says, you know, with every head bowed and every eye closed, if you feel the Holy Spirit tugging on your heart, you come forward and you accept Jesus, yeah, and you pray the sinner's prayer, yeah, and you surrender your life to him, yeah. I said, well, we think of it differently. Instead of saying, do you accept Jesus, we say, does Jesus accept us? Instead of saying, do you surrender your life to God, we ask, has God surrendered his life to us? Instead of asking, if we accept Jesus into our heart, we ask, has, has Jesus prayed for us and accepted us? Instead of saying, have you surrendered everything? We ask, has God given everything? And the answer to that is yes. That, and, it's, and there's, you can see it, right? There's a, there's a certainty in that. If it, there's, a, there's a confidence in that. And this, um, this lady was crying there as I talked about this and uh, she, she said, that's the most, that's the most beautiful thing I've ever heard. And, um, and I said, well, you should become Lutheran because that's what we talk about all the time. Yeah. I'm going to go home and tell my husband, this is, you see the difference is it's not our, our, our being Christian does not rest on the, on the kind of flimsy uncertainty of our own decision, but on the on the rock solid confidence of the Lord's eternal decree. So it starts with Jesus. It starts with His determination to save. It's it starts with His 
death and resurrection and sending the Holy Spirit. He is the Alpha as well as the Omega of our faith. And and so that starts now building on the right foundation of his solid word and promises. Well, why is it important? You mentioned his solid word and promises. What does it mean for us to understand that God speaks and is speaking to us in his word? Well, it's so I think every there's a handful of ways to go at this because the devil is always attacking the word of God. I mean, from the very beginning in the Garden of Eden, here's the devil with Adam and Eve and says, did God really say, come on? Yes, devil. But it's apparently it's not so easy, especially in the midst of all this trouble, just to say yes. But the devil brings his own words to bring us away from the Lord's word. And that attack on the Lord's word happens from a number of different angles. You have the Catholic attack on the word of God, which is to exalt tradition and the magisterium. And they ended up saying that the Bible is obscure. They deny the perspicuity of the scripture and the sufficiency of the scripture. And they say that you have to have the authoritative interpretation of the church to know what God says. The progressive side of, and and this would be, in Protestantism, I suppose, so the mainline denominations, that's also an attack on God's word because it says that God's the Bible contains God's word, but it's not God's word. It also contains man's word and errors, and they have a critical view. In fact, they they treat the Bible like political propaganda, like you had the, it, it's like um, you had the Yahwists and you had the Deuterists and the Eloists, and they're all trying to make a political argument to support King David or whatever. Who knows? It's horrible the way they think about the Bible. It's all political propaganda, and um, it's a, just a despairing way. It's a dark way to read the Bible, like a progressivist uh, theologian. That, that's also in the Catholic Church, by the way. You, it's very, very hard to find a Catholic who believes, for example, that Isaiah wrote Isaiah. Or that Moses wrote Genesis. You just can't find it. So so that destroys the Bible by mixing in man's word and God's word. In in evangelicalism, American evangelicalism, they beautifully confess the authority of the scripture, that God's word is, is uh, breathed out by God. It's inspired. It's infallible, inerrant. So inerrant means it doesn't err. It, um, doesn't err, infallible means it can't err because God says it. So they confess the truth of the scripture, but they deny the power of the scripture, the efficacy of the word of God. That is that for most American uh, evangelicals or p- people in American Christianity, God's word is true, but it's it comes back to our will to go one way or the other. So so the word says Christ died for you, but it doesn't it doesn't have power in it until you accept it, until you believe, it, until you choose it. Like, here's what God says. Here's what the devil says. And now you're up in the middle. In fact, I heard this sermon one time that said that Jesus has cast his vote for your salvation. The devil has cast his vote against your salvation. And now it's up to you to cast the tie breaking vote. That's the idea Th- that God's word is information fine and it's true information but that's all the the old lutherans and and i think elizabeth this is amazing to me that this might be a place where the lutherans are unique they really stand out no um 
No other confession or denomination has this doctrine of the efficacy or the power of God's word. All the other churches confess that the Bible, if it's true, is information that we can then have to act on. But we confess that the Bible is powerful and that God, through the word, read, heard, preached, that the Lord converts. Just like in the beginning when the Lord said, let there be light, and there was light. So now the Lord says, um, I forgive you your sins, and sins are forgiven. It's a true, powerful working of the word of God. And that is beneath all of our understanding of what the church is. So baptism saves because it, the Lord takes that powerful word and puts it in the water. The body and blood in the Lord's Supper forgive sins because the Lord takes that powerful word and puts it with the body and the blood and the bread and the wine and feeds it to us in the supper. The absolution truly forgives sins. You, you can't find this in any other church. You can't find anybody saying, I forgive you all your sins. Even our closest theological cousins, which would be like the conservative Anglicans, they, they don't have the absolution. They have something like the assurance of pardon. Christ has forgiven you. We, it, because it, it doesn't have that powerful word that, that the gospel is doing what it says. And this is our doctrine. I, Paul says, I'm not ashamed of the gospel because it's the power of God for salvation for those who believe. So the powers in the gospel. Faith comes by hearing and hearing by the word of Christ. Romans 10, verse 17. So, um, so we confess the power or the strength, the efficacy of the word of God. It's so beautiful, isn't it? It really is. And it's, it's so comforting at the same time. We have a whole lot more to unpack about American Christianity and uh, in all of this. So would you be willing to come back for part two That'd be of great. this episode? That'd be great. I think we're so like we're, on page 12 of the book so far. So I think, I think, <laughs> yeah, it's, it's going to be a little bit. We're, we're going to come back and, and really dig in because there is so much there to unpack and it is very, very relevant to what we're experiencing in our world today as we have theological conversations with, friends and neighbors, um, and everyone. So stay tuned listeners. We will have pastor Wolf Mueller back for part two of has American Christianity failed in the meantime, check the show notes where you can learn more about his book has American Christianity failed and connect with pastor Wolf Mueller on his, his social platforms and on his website. So Brian, stay tuned for part two. That's great. Thank you. <laughs> Thanks everyone. Till next time. Thank you for joining us on this episode of the Concordia Publishing House podcast. I pray that this time was valuable to your walk with Christ. We'd love to connect with listeners on Instagram, Facebook, and Twitter at Concordia Pub. Visit cph.org for more resources to grow deeper in the gospel.